0: Welcome to the 29th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including the young Democratic Socialist Party and their ever-growing enthusiasm, A article talking about the midterms and how Republicans are on a roll, and of course, if you've been paying any attention to the news or even been on social media, Elon Musk has acquired Twitter, and I would feel like we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't talk about it. And, of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into our daily debate. And I actually want to pause my prayers, and I hope all of your prayers go out to Paul Pelosi Uh, the terrible attack that happened in San Francisco against him in his home. Uh, Obviously, the man was arrested and he got through surgery okay, but just send your prayers to Nancy Pelosi, Paul Pelosi, and their family, just so he recovers quickly. All right, to our daily debate. Has the two-party system outgrown its usefulness? For almost a century at this point, the American system, political system, has had two choices when voting. Sure, there, of course, have been the third parties, the progressives in the earliest 20th century, the Green Party, the Libertarian Party nowadays. But at the end of the day, they really haven't gained enough momentum to be fully established. So is it time that we move past our current two-party system to get some fresh blood, some new ideas infused into the American system? Or has the two-party system lasted as long as it has for a good reason? Put your comments down there in the comments section. I'd love to hear your opinions on the matter. Now, let's get into our first article. This one comes from The Nation. Young socialists are sick of the two-party system. So the author starts, of course, by talking about the divide within the Democratic Party. And how it's continuing to grow. You've seen these candidates over the last 10 years. Bernie, of course, has been in there forever. And he's always called himself a democratic socialist. But the rise of AOC, Ilan Omar, you know, the Squad. These sort of actors who are democratic socialists at heart. So you've seen a slow growth of that wing of the party. But now, the National Democratic Socialist Party the DSA for short, and the YDSA, the Young Democratic Socialist of America, um, which I will be using throughout the rest of this article just to make things easier. Yeah. I may say the full name, may not. It just depends on how I'm feeling, honestly. Uh, they are feeling as though they need to make a, a split from the Democratic Party. They feel that they have enough momentum behind them, they have enough support as well as the fact that the Democrats aren't truly reflecting all of their positions, and they're not necessarily going far enough on some of these issues. So, you know, there's this idealistic, this optimistic thinking in the youth wing of the DSA that they can win without Democratic support, quote, The young left has already largely dissatisfied with the Democratic Party before Biden, but it took activists and organizers across the country to make these initial accomplishments possible. Much of this work started during Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaigns, when many groups used the senator's outsider status and platform to advance their own, such as the Democratic Socialists of America, which has seen record growth to 90,000 members strong, end quote. And, you know, 90,000 is not a small number whatsoever, and they've continued to gain momentum over the last four years. And I I really think that this speaks to the dissatisfaction within the current system. And you see it from the right as well with a MAGA, quote-unquote, MAGA movement or a populist movement. There's a dissatisfaction with the things that are going on here in Washington. They look at the system and they say to our people say to ourselves, wow, those policies are really just benefiting the top 20%. And I don't mean to sound, let's be clear here, I do not mean to sound like a socialist law, the top 20%. But at the end of the day, the system in place benefits a certain portion of the population. And those are the lobbyists, the people that are politically active and giving money to these politicians and Wall Street and you know, there's a certain dissatisfaction that can be felt in the populace. And that's why I think this movement, the YDSA and the MAGA movement, the populist movement on the right, they all, though they may seem disconnected and they have different ideologies on how to fix the system or how to at least change it. I think it is all a symptom of a greater problem that is happening in America right now, which is, The politicians, they're so detached from reality that they don't care about the common everyday man. And, of course, there are exceptions to that. I'm not saying every single politician, but the politicians that have been in there for years upon years upon years, at the end of the day, they're no longer worried about their constituents. They're worried about their next paycheck, uh, their next speaking engagement. They're worried about keeping their job. And I never used to understand it when I would talk to people in the older generation or my parents saying, oh, we need to get these career politicians out of there. And I always used to think, I mean, yeah, that sounds, that sounds right. We don't want someone who's in there that doesn't speak to the youth population. But at the same time, don't we want someone that has an understanding of how the system works, who will be able to have connections on both sides of the aisle to get things done? And what I hadn't realized at that time is that when they do go across the aisle to get certain things done, it's not in favor of the common man. It's in it's in favor of them. At the end of the day, they're trading favors back and forth so that they can say to their constituents, oh, look what I got you. It's not exactly what I promised, and it's not exactly what you need, but it'll help you a little bit. So vote me back in so I can keep working for you. So... You know, I just bring it up because there's a lot of dissatisfaction. And this, though you may not agree with the YDSA and some of their beliefs, you may not agree with the MAGA and their populist beliefs. But at the end of the day, there's a dissatisfaction that's brewing. And I wonder if it'll boil over at this point. But the young Democratic Socialists of America, they're they're really pushing hard for this break from the Democrats. Quote, this past summer, YDSA held its annual convention for its 131 chapters nationwide. Resolution 15, quote, for an independent working-class socialist party stood out. Offered by the Reform and Revolution Caucus, that's a really, <laughs> we can pause for a second, the Reform and Revolution Caucus, that, if that's not the name of a caucus, then I don't know what is. The proposal called for severing ties with the democratic machine to formulate an independent socialist party, calling it a dirty break strategy. And this is what you can expect from a younger population. Um, We were learning recently in a class about the youth bulge, which happens in countries when there is a large portion of the population that is young. And they tend to be unemployed or not have the best financial situation. And they're kind of dissatisfied with the current system. They are idealistic, optimistic about what they can do to change the system. And this is, this is removing now from the definition of youth bulge. It kind of makes sense in my mind that the young people in a population, the, the activists, the organizers they are, I don't want to say naive, and I don't want to keep using the word idealistic, but they truly believe that they can change the system. They haven't yet been beaten down by the system, or they haven't yet experienced all the benefits that systems can provide if they know how to go about it and utilize it for themselves. So they're very idealistic in their approach, saying, no, 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 we can upend it. We can change it. We can make it better. And You can really see this in this young libertarian populist movement on the right with the young democratic socialists on the left. I've heard a lot of talk from people I know, any side of the aisle, saying, oh, we we need to get past the two-party system, or at least there needs to be a break on both sides. And I think that's very, very interesting when I hear the youth population saying that. Now, does that mean that every single person that says that is actually going to go out there, build the infrastructure, do all the hard work to get there? No, at the end of the day, it's easy to say this sort of thing and it's easy to have this mentality that we need to change the system, but it's very hard to do. But the young Democratic Socialists of America, they're out here passing proposals. They're actively trying to put in place infrastructure for their own party. So you can see that they're, they're trying to do this and they're taking it very seriously and we'll see if it benefits them in the long run. Because at the end of the day, I think the question will be, if they do split from the Democrats, is that going to actually help them? Because right now, you know, 90,000 members across the United States in the Democratic Socialists of America, that's not the young wing of the party, that is just the Democratic Socialists of America. That's not a huge portion of the population and right now they kind of they've had to align themselves with the democrats over the last few years to get things done in order to actually get some of their proposals into law so i really want to pose the question to you and maybe you've seen talk of the the split in the republican party with the lincoln project and now we're seeing a similar split and i t- even told my aunt i said this is going to happen there will be a split within the Democratic Party within the next 10 years, and she said, you're, you're probably right, even though she didn't want to admit it, I th- think it will hurt them at the end of the day, because they are going to be splitting the votes. They're not going to be putting in candidates that have a little bit of a Democratic-Socialist leaning, but at the end of the day will still appeal to the masses, and it will split the votes that would go towards the Democrats or the Socialists, because you know not many And I mean, not many independents and Republicans are willing to vote for a socialist candidate. And that's just dividing the Democratic base in half. So it may lead to years of Republican control before people truly become dissatisfied. And the young Democratic socialists, the Democratic socialists of America, until that party can really gain gain traction with this working class socialist party that they're trying to build. The author says, well, actually, no, this is from uh, Katie Weaver. Quote, I don't see us able to make a dirty break. And she's the co-chair of the North Central High School's YDSA chapter, citing the Democratic Party, Party's, quote, power and wealth. Quote, the two-party system is so strongly ingrained in the political process, it is going to be difficult to break that mold, end quote. And I would have to agree. And just like the rant I just gave about it's going to split the Democratic base, uh, they need that base. They need that, that voting block to help them get at least a few of their proposals through Congress and through to the president so he can try to sign them into law. And it, at this point, like she said, it, it's so deeply ingrained within the American system that we have two parties and one serves one population, one serves the other, even though that's not true anymore. you know We're starting to see a breakup of uh, the traditional blocks that either side would normally get votes from. But at the end of the day, so people are so used to a two-party system that they're going to see a third party on the ballot, like the Green Party, and it's going to barely get enough votes to influence anything. Maybe it gets enough to take away from one candidate or another. But at the end of the day, that third party is probably not going to win. So I believe it was Jill Stein of the Green Party back when Hillary and Trump were first running. Someone can correct me on that. But she barely got enough votes to change anything at the end of the day. And she definitely didn't get enough votes to be president. So some people feel as though when they're voting for a third party, it can either be a protest vote or it can be throwing their vote away. They feel that they want to vote. They still want to make their opinion heard, but they don't want to vote. For either of the two candidates. So we'll see. If this split does happen, if the YDSA does get its resolution passed and they start building that infrastructure, we'll see here in the future how much that affects the Democrats and the Democratic Socialists' ability to win these major elections and get the people that they want in office, in office. All right, that's enough talking about the article from The Nation. Let's get into one from the Washington Examiner. Republicans are on a roll. So with the last article, you probably didn't hear much about it beforehand. Obviously, maybe a few people read The Nation or a few people are aware of the movement of the Democratic Socialists of America. But at the end of the day, that, that's not a really mainstream idea. It's not espoused on a whole bunch of different news organizations. This idea that is first brought up in this article that the polls are tightening and it's not in favor of Democrats, you've probably heard this idea everywhere from Fox News to CNN to MSNBC. All the different news networks are talking about this now that Democrats are really losing their lead. And the slate of candidates that the Republicans put forth, you've probably heard this talked about as well. You know, this midterm were not the strongest. They included Uh, populist and famous personas like Walker, Oz, J.D. Vance, and just to name a few. So going into this midterm season, the Democrats thought they had it in the bag. They thought that a lot of these candidates that Trump put forward, oh, no, we we can beat them easy. We'll fund them a little bit. We'll give them a little bit of extra money so that they are the Republican nominees, and then we can easily crush them when it comes to the general election. But at the end of the day, you know, economic conditions have worsened. Many people are asking themselves why. And they're they're looking at a lot of different factors, of course. But the easiest one for people to blame or to look at is to look at the party in power. And that's the Democrats. They have the House. They barely have the Senate. And they have the presidency. So they have the, the executive and the legislative branch. Those are the two branches that matter when it comes to enacting policy, and especially policy that directly affects the everyday of Americans. And they look to them and say, oh, okay, you're in power and economic conditions have gotten worse. I I can barely pay off my my car loan now with the interest rate hikes because I didn't get a fixed interest rate loan. Oh, goodness. I, I really don't want you in power. I want to see what the other guys can do. And even though that the candidates for the Republicans are quite, quite terrible, and I I say that, some of them are good, some of them, you know, have great policies, they have great speaking points, but at the end of the day, these are just famous people throwing their hat in the ring because they saw what Trump did. And they maybe have a, a good vision for America, and they could, and I'm not trying to discourage anybody who believes that they can help the American system out, famous or not. I'm not trying to discourage that and say, oh, no, 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 just because you're famous, you can't run. If they have a vision for America, they want to do something that's really going to help their constituents. Of course they can run and they should run. But remember, famous personas, they saw Trump's success and they're like, oh, okay, I can get in politics now. I can put my name back in the news cycle. And even though those sort of candidates are what the Republicans are putting forward, people are still more willing to vote for them than the Democrats who are in power currently. And it's very interesting to look at as these polls tighten. Some people are even saying that the New York race, which is normally skewed very Democrat when it comes to gubernatorial elections, uh, they're even saying that that could go red with uh, Lee coming into office here soon. Or Sorry, Lee Zeldin, if you don't know who that is. He's the Republican gubernatorial candidate. So... We're going to have to see how this all plays out, and I think it's a very interesting one. Quote, now with Election Day around the corner, polls are suggesting a return to convention. Voters are poised to punish the party in power in the White House amid intense dissatisfaction with President Joe Biden and rising anxiety over the economic and public safety. This is putting Republicans on the precipice of winning a majority in the Senate, after a late summer and early fall of doubt, doubt, doubt. And with the House already long since leaning towards a GOP takeover, Democrats on Capitol Hill are staring down the barrel of a complete and total sweep. So this author does not believe that the Democrats have an amazing chance of winning. But he does bring up a really great point, which is Democrats are really more energized than ever. And this is especially because of the Dobbs decision. And a lot of Republicans I've talked to say that abortion is not an issue, or even that I've listened to. I've heard talking points from maybe Knowles, uh, Michael Knowles of the Daily Wire. And he says, ah, well, no, no, no. I'm telling you now, abortion is not an issue that is going to stoke a lot of people to go out there and vote. And I, I greatly disagree. I know that at the end of the day, the Supreme Court kicked it back to the states. So now it's a state's issue. But there are a lot of people who truly believe that it's their right to control their body. It's more, instead of it just being about abortions, it's about their liberty, their freedoms. And that's a very compelling argument. And one, and when I say compelling argument, I mean to them. It's one that really speaks to the government should not be involved in deciding what happens in my body. That is an extremely strong position, and it creates a lot of strong emotional responses, and it really makes them think about liberty and the nature of government involvement in our lives. And if the Democrats are the ones saying that we'll let you have that, that right, we're going to try to codify Roe into law, then that is very motivating for a lot of people. And I think that a lot of people on the right are underselling how important that is. Is it enough to go out and completely change the polls and make the Democrats win overall? No, I believe when taking polls, it's about the third most important issue for most people when you take a aggregate poll. And I think it's the second overall for Democrats, if not first. So, I think it's a little bit naive to say that it's not motivating them or not energizing them when you hear this kind of talk from people on the right. But I do agree that at the end of the day, economic conditions are the number one factor when you take an aggregate poll across the board. Democrats, Republicans, independents, economic factors are number one. And that is where the Republicans lead. And that is where they're getting a lot of their energy from. The Democrats are getting it from the Dobbs decision and different immigration policy questions. And the Republicans are getting the economic side. They're saying, we will try our best to fix the economy or at least get things under control, get our spending under control, cut certain programs that aren't necessary, therefore taking money out of the economy and stopping this crazy inflation. Now, are they going to actually be able to do that much? No. But at the end of the day, the conservatives are going to get in they're going to try to stop passing major legislation. They're going to try to cut things. They probably won't end up cutting things because people will be mad. But a lot of people see that as a benefit. They say, oh, okay, we're not going to keep doing these crazy spending plans. Or we're not going to keep enacting this large legislation. That, that's good. That's all we can ask for. And that's what people kind of expect of the conservatives. Sit there, do nothing, keep things as they are, and maybe roll back a few programs that aren't too necessary. And I kind of got lost on a long tangent there. But the author bringing up the fact that the Democrats are so energized is really trying to say to the Republicans in coded language, don't get complacent. You may have a lot of people who support you guys when it comes to the economic prospects or the ideas that you have when it comes to helping solve the inflationary problems and the economic problems. But don't get complacent. The Democrats are more energized than ever. And you can't just sit there on your butt and, you know, expect to win in a large wave. And they're not speaking just to the politicians, because the politicians are out there in numbers, in droves, trying to gain support. But they're speaking directly to the people. The author saying, guys, you may think you're going to win, but complacency is going to ensure that you don't win as much as you could. So he's really telling Republicans, get out there and vote. And... As the Democrats see their impending doom, and that's my own language here, their own impending doom coming, the rhetoric that they are using is getting a little bit scarier, in my opinion. There's a quote here from the article, quote, It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. It's the Union against the Confederates, said Bernie Lawson, 50, a black liberal activist and Fetterman supporter in Harrisburg. Quote, The Republicans have become the Confederates now because they want to break into the Capitol, end quote. And this is some really, really strong, dangerous, and frankly irresponsible language, in my opinion. You can't be saying things like this. You you can't be drawing the line saying that one side's the Confederacy, which, you know, for the most part, people can agree that they were morally reprehensible and that the North was morally right in doing what it did to unify the Union and Sorry, to keep the Union as one nation and to end slavery. You can't compare one current political party to a side that was doing morally outrageous things in keeping slaves and ter- terrible, terrible things when actively harming people and enslaving their families and keeping them down generation after generation you cannot make that a moral equivalency it is extremely dangerous because if we could go to war to free the slaves and to keep the south from succeeding if that was morally justifiable at the time which most people i'm saying most people especially historians and most modern americans agree that that was the right thing to do that war was justified then making this moral equivalency saying that the, Confeder- the, South, the Republicans are just like the Confederates, then you are making a statement that it is morally acceptable to go to war with them and to keep them out of power because they are terrible people. That is an extremely dangerous qu- statement, and it is rhetoric that should not be acceptable. And I'm extremely scared when I hear that, because no matter what side of the aisle you're on, you should not be okay with comparing a modern political party to the Confederate South. That is not acceptable. Period. Full stop. And that pundit was out of place for saying it. But no matter what the current polls and pundits are saying, we can really look at the past to gain some insight as to what's going to happen during these midterms, or at least what should happen. Quote, historically, the president's party loses an average of 25 seats in the House, and four Senate seats in midterm elections, no matter what. Early on, the political chit chat was all about how this time maybe the party in power in the White House is in a position to gain seats this midterm, or at least you know not shed enough to alter the balance of power in Congress. But the speculation quickly gave way to reality. End quote. So the authors really highlighting here: historical trends are probably going to hold true here. It's not, you know, the history is not always a guide for the future, but this seems to be a trend that we're not kicking anytime soon. Now, you know, that was enough ranting for me. Sorry, I got a little heated about the comments from Mr. Lawson, but I I think that's crazily uh, irresponsible. So let's get into our last article, a real quick one from The New Republic. Why Elon Musk's idea of free speech will help ruin America. The author starts with a bold claim, and even bolder than the title, saying that, quote, "...with Musk in charge, the fascist will take over." And, of course, the author is really talking about Trump here, Trump being allowed back on the platform and his trolls coming along with him. Quote, "...Musk and the right see this as a great thing because it will restore free speech to Twitter. Any suggestions that that sort of free speech they envision can have highly undesirable consequences is met with howls of, quote, libs hate free speech, end quote, or other accusations of fascism. Similarly, warnings that unfettered free speech results in dangerous misinformation spreading are derided with sunlight is the best disinfectant and the libertarian belief that in the marketplace of ideas, the best idea will win out, end quote. So this is really what the author is getting at throughout the rest of the article, that there is misinformation that will be spread if Elon's vision of free speech is allowed on the platform, if Trump's allowed back on, and also that this idea that just exposing bad ideas to sunlight and allowing these ideas to exist on Twitter and allowing people to call them out when they know that they're bad ideas, Uh, that's not enough. That The moderation that Twitter had put in place is actively helping people. It's ensuring that misinformation isn't spread. It's protecting vulnerable populations. And this is the argument you've heard from the, the left and people that like Twitter as it is for a long time. But I think we need to break it down a little bit more here. Because the author really thinks, at the end of the day, with all those uh, stipulations that I just put out there, the author really believes that it's Twitter's job to decide what information is. And its main prerogative should be to help the state of the nation, the state of the world, and that the Twitter has a higher calling, so to speak, that they should be the ones deciding what's information, that they should be the ones deciding what should and shouldn't be allowed on platforms. And that's why Musk is taking over. Musk does not want to be the arbiter of free speech or what should be said online. He does not want to be the one deciding what people are allowed to say. He is just going to uphold it to legal standards in different countries. That's what he said, at least. And the author brings up a good point. That's going to be hard to do because a lot of laws in Europe, especially around hate speech laws, are different than the United States. And in order to have those laws actually be implemented and those current conventions to be implemented, you would have to either have European laws apply here or the U.S. laws apply in Europe when it comes to Twitter. So there's a question that, in order to make sure that all the laws are followed in certain countries, are they going to really have to silo off Twitter? They're going to have to say, this is European Twitter, this is American Twitter, this is Chinese Twitter, and then not allow them to interact? Because what happens if an American goes onto European Twitter or talks to a person in Europe and doesn't use their preferred pronouns? Well, that's hate speech in Europe, but that's not hate speech here in america and i'm pretty sure that person cannot be prosecuted in europe if they're in america at the time of doing it or maybe they can that's where things get extremely tricky so we'll have to see what elon musk's solution is because he came out on friday saying that twitter's going to follow the laws of the countries that it operates in so if it operates in multiple countries, how are you going to combine all those different laws into one cohesive? And yes, I am putting my fingers straight together right now. One giant cohesive uh, policy or code of conduct for Twitter. We'll see. It's very interesting. Uh, the author really talks about the spread of anti-mask and anti-vax information, in particular when it comes to misinformation. Quote, over 1 million Americans have died of COVID-19. At least 25% of those deaths were preventable if people had gotten vaccinated. Many others could have been prevented if people wore masks, socially distanced, believed, in the di- believed that the disease was real, and otherwise behaved in a rational manner. End quote. A uh, few points here. Interesting that they bring up a rational manner. I don't necessarily think it's rational that we should shut down the entire economy that supports millions of Americans' lives, especially those that are not as fortunate and can't just sit at home off their hedge fund or you know stipends from their job. Uh, that's interesting that they say be- behaved in a rational manner. I would say that during COVID, none of us acted in a rational manner, no matter what side of the aisle you're on. But the the interesting point they make here is that 25% of those deaths were preventable if people got vaccinated. And there's kind of a f- conflation here that those 25% could have been prevented if those people were vaccinated. And therefore, she's trying to make the connection that this information that was spread across social media is the reason that these people died, because they didn't get vaccinated. And it it is true that it could be, she has statistical data for this one saying that it is less likely that you die if you have gotten vaccinated and that 25% of those people that died were not vaccinated. So that's a pretty easy jump to make. That's a pretty logical bridge there saying, okay, if you were vaccinated, the 25%, then you're less likely to die. But where she's just drawing a really thin line, a really thin straw trying to connect this to misinformation is saying that it is because of the misinformation that people didn't get vaccinated. I'm sorry, she provides no evidence that she didn't go out to people and ask for at least anecdotal evidence saying, why didn't you get vaccinated? And then maybe hear an argument that they don't trust the government, they don't get vaccines in general, or maybe even having a legitimate medical reason to not get vaccinated. She's trying to say that, or he, I actually need to check that before I make a claim like that. Give me a second. Uh, The author is Brian Tannehill. So he, he goes out of his way to make this connection that because of information, those people did not get vaccinated. That is not necessarily true. Some people may not even have social media and chose not to get vaccinated because they don't trust the government. They don't trust a rapidly developed vaccine. They wanted more time than a month to see the efficacy, to see what would actually happen when people got vaccinated. So to just outright claim that it's the fault of misinformation and bad actors trying to spread falsehoods about vaccines That's a very large jump, at least logically, to explain those 25% of deaths. And I I find it very, I don't want to say negligent, because that's not fair. But I I think they're trying to put themselves in a logic loop here. They're trying to explain away why this misinformation is bad, and they're trying to reach for any data they can and drawing false connections. And and there is one other claim that the author is making here about radicalization, that allowing this sort of extreme free speech, you know, anti-Semitic free speech, these sort of things will lead to radicalization on the part of Twitter, or at least an unmoderated Twitter. And the real question I would ask is yet, antifa oppressive religious regimes they can all tweet as of now before Musk taking over they could all tweet and organize and spread their ideology and possibly radicalize somebody so why is that sort of radicalization okay but in the other sense radicalization towards a more conservative religious sense why is that not okay i don't think radicalization in general is okay period full stop but why has the organizations that radicalize people, why have they been so one-sided when Twitter removes them? That's the real question that needs to be answered here. And I think the author needs to re-look at their assumptions and needs to sit down and say, OK, I need to reevaluate here. We should get rid of all radicalization. And I'm going to call out previous Twitter for not doing it. Or say, okay, radicalization is okay, which I don't think the author will do. I just think that it's a little bit uh, intellectually dishonest when they're calling out Twitter for you know, possibly having more radicalization in the future. And yet they don't call out Twitter on the previous organizations that were already on there radicalizing people while the old regime was controlling Twitter. Now, you know, that's enough negative stuff. Let's get on to our daily delight. This one comes from Travel and Leisure. This adorable service dog has spent 700 days on cruise ships, and Holland American Line just recognized her status. Joska, a 10-year-old black Labrador, was honored for her service this week. She, quote, received the high honor during the current 150th anniversary transatlantic crossing on the Rotterdam. She has sailed to destinations around the globe from Alaska and Hawaii to Canada, Europe, the Caribbean, and more. In fact, Joska has sailed on more than 50 Holland American cruises since 2014, end quote. And, you know, she really deserves a lot of credit for her hard work as a service dog. It's nice to see that this cute little, girl is really getting recognized for what she's done. Quote, Joska is the first service animal to achieve this lofty status. and We wanted to honor her with an event that shows her how special she is and shows how special she is to everyone in our company. End quote. Holland American line president Gus Artacha said in a statement shared with TNL. So congrats to Joska. Uh, we wish her further safe travels around the world And we hope that she can brighten a lot of people's lives. So if you want to see any of the cute videos from her ceremony or read any of today's articles, there will be a link in that description below the like and subscribe button. Uh, Also down there is my Twitter handle, at Your Daily Flip. You can go there for quick and convenient news, post something every single day. Some days it is linked to the podcast, but most days it's commentary or starting a conversation with somebody and trying to point things out that are happening in our current political system. All right. With all of that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.